sorry. Yeah, great. No, no. So I'll often introduce myself as Jean Vieve, but Genevieve is also very correct. Yeah. yeah, actually, that's that's actually much more easier. Yeah. And yeah, we are oh, and towards... I'm so sorry. My uh, my baby is waking up and he's crying in the background. So if you could give me a second, I can um, give him yeah, yeah. something. Go, to go, ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, okay, go ahead. I'll go be ahead. right back. Just one okay, second. Okay. Sure, sure. Uh, hello and welcome everyone to whoever's listening to this podcast on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify or any other platforms that you use. I am Jayesha. I uh, invite machine learning engineers, researchers and entrepreneurs to talk more about their current work, insights and their journey on getting started with it. And for this podcast, we have with us Dr. John Weir Patterson. She's the head of applied research at VSCO. Prior to that, she was the CTO of a video editing company that she co-founded with her friend called Trash, which was later acquired by VSCO itself. She holds a PhD in computer science from Brown University with a focus of research in video understanding. She was also a postdoctoral researcher at Microsoft Research, where she worked on interpreting deep neural networks and much more that I guess I'll be learning today with her on this podcast. So, um, thank, thank you, John Weir. Uh, welcome to this podcast and thanks for being here. My pleasure. I'm excited about it. All right. So, uh, to get started, um, can you tell us, like, uh, I don't have a, a much more uh, luck of talking to a lot of head of research people. So, can you tell us a bit about uh, what, what kind of research projects you are working on as the, applied, uh, as the head of applied research at VSCO? Right. So um, my startup, uh, Trash, was acquired two months ago now. And so I'm still um, kind of in my first 90 days trying to learn a lot about uh, my new uh, my new team, my new company. And we're, um, we're under 100 employees. So uh, our research group is, is much smaller than Microsoft Research, where I worked before, um, where research is... Uh, very similar to academic research that um, you know researchers don't necessarily have to go to uh, the NSF for, for grant money um, <laughs> but they're um, building projects based on how much impact they think they're going to have to the field um, you know often in industrial research the the goal is a long-term contribution to the company so having some kind of application that is close to the company's uh, um, business model is good, but really they're very academic. And my research is much closer to a user. So because we're such a you know, small company, um, my research projects and, and what kind of academic research I'd like to implement or extend is always user focused. Can I see a user actually using this research in the next six months? Um, can I release it today? What is an approximation? Um, this is a question that I ask myself all the time. If I see a cool paper, what is an approximation of the approach that they're trying that'll enable me to deliver this to a user as fast as possible? And that's pretty much how I came up with my um, last startup. And, and my projects at Visco are similar, where I'm trying to think, what are techniques from model interpretability or model explainability, where I can deliver some information to the user as fast as possible. Um, what are 
techniques from video summarization or um, computational photography techniques that I can take a version of them that is less computationally intensive and put it directly into the app. So my day is usually, um, you know, 50 or 60% uh, meetings with um, individual contributors, uh, either in, you know, app developers or server-side developers and saying, what are the workflows that, that you work on every day? What are the components of the product that you're working on regularly? And how could we take um, you know, some approximated version of a neural network technique and apply that uh, directly to, to your work, yeah, either making it easy for the engineer or making a more interesting output for the user? Wow, that, that's really interesting. But if you were to take a step back for people who might want to learn about your background. So um, you did your undergrad in Tripoli and mathematics from University of Arizona, which, uh, by the way, is an ASU rivalry. So uh, people who would be watching uh, these uh, podcasts and uh, uh, who are Arizona State University students, I guess they won't be, they might be dropping out of the call for right now. But <laughs> just kidding. Uh, but um, definitely you did your undergrad over there from University of Arizona and then you went for your master's in Tokyo so and uh, so trying to learn more about I, I I assume that was that would be the time that you first dabbled around your machine learning projects or even the basics of machine learning so can you look back onto those uh, time and can you tell us what was the first time that you learned about machine learning and what was the thing that really interested you about that hey I want to explore more and rather than not maybe let's do a research in this particular domain yeah, uh, so um, I, I also grew up in Arizona, so like the ASU-UVA rivalry is, is very real, <laughs> like very, but it turns out once you leave Arizona, no one, no one knows what you're talking about. And, um, but I, uh, I really felt like uh, my um, undergraduate career, it was at you know, a large state university um, where I felt like I learned a lot about a lot of different engineering disciplines. So the idea of seeing problems from the user perspective is something that I, I gained while I was an undergrad, um, but I wasn't really introduced to machine learning approaches until my master's degree, where, uh, again, I learned about machine learning from that perspective of, of the applied domain. And um, the, the first time I remember uh, actually using a machine learning technique was um, in order to... Uh, uh, classify um, the state of train platforms um, that I, I worked. Uh, so I, I worked on um, electrical machines and signal processing, like controlling motors and, and braking systems. And, um, and so I worked in a lab that had a lot to do with train systems. And they had this uh, problem brought to them by, um, uh, I think it was the Kyoto subway and uh, JR East Japan East Railways. Um, where they'd have this problem where trains would be off schedule. There'd be some accident, some accident or some natural disaster or something that would knock the trains off schedule. And they had lots of uh, procedural techniques for figuring out what the recovery schedule should be in order to optimize for returning to schedule as quickly as possible. That seems like you would want to, that's what you want to do. The trains are off schedule. You want to get back on schedule as soon as possible. Okay, problem simple. But it wasn't that simple in uh, densely populated urban environments, because if you did that, that scenario as um, the subway system and these uh, you know, commuter train systems would do, um, the platform, the train platform would become overpopulated. 
and there would be more accidents or more delays because there'd be so many people that, that uh, they, they couldn't stand on the platform. They couldn't get on and off the train easily. And so these uh, different um, uh, uh, train operators came to the lab worked in and said, give us some um, more options. Uh, sorry, my headphones oh. have decided to turn off. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I thought something went wrong around my end also. <laughs> Oops. Oh, there we go. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, um, right. So, so what happened was they wanted instead to say, how can we uh, decide on a train schedule that is going to um, optimize from the person's point of view? How are we going to make it seem to the commuter like, the platform is emptying quickly, um, getting on the train and getting off the train is the same way that it was when the train was on schedule. And so even if it takes a lot longer to recover the good train schedule, that from the user's perspective, that it'll be uh, um, as comfortable as possible. And so we were trying to classify um, the state of the platform. Is it full? Is, is, you know, is it moving? Is other people moving correctly on it? And so that was the first time that I saw SVMs trying to like look at a picture of a train platform and decide, are there too many people here? And is this train too full? Um, uh, and I thought that that was uh, kind of magical and, and that the effect of it was kind of magical. And then the fact that the, the actual math involved was so understandable like and it's funny and i think that in general machine learning has um uh something that sort of defies understanding like the high dimensionality of many machine learning problems um has a lot of unintuitive uh consequences but the the basic idea of you know a linear approximation to some nonlinear manifold like that made so much sense to me. Okay, I'm I'm going to be like a fortune teller, and I'm just going to linearly project my idea into the future, and then I'm going to know what it is. But that seemed both magical and really understandable at the same time, and uh, that's why I kind of changed my my emphasis, and I went into machine learning. Wow. I guess, um, uh, to be honest, you would be the first person who might have said uh, all the math behind these. Uh, these models was something understandable and that made you interested into machine learning i guess you, you are one of the rare people who are the genuine machine learning experts who claim to be having a love for machine learning because most of the people and uh, i guess uh, i can be included in that criteria that my mathematics is not something i enjoy but definitely i can dabble around if needed uh, but only if needed and when needed that is the part that i um, that I try to understand, but yeah, that's 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 really interesting. And uh, to probe you more on that, uh, just few facts about those projects. Like, was that something part of your thesis, or was that something part of your external work that you did, or like? Because I assume, because for me, when I get got get started into machine got started into machine learning, I just frequently went on the, the open source data so data sets. Mm -hmm. So I would always find out few people who might have done few things or not. But I guess I assume this was much more. Uh, real world project where you are you were trying to solve something for someone as a part of your maybe coursework or something so you didn't have anyone who would have published their model out there that hey if you if you if you do wrong at least you have a baseline to compare so what was that part of your um coursework or was that something um your uh, own curiosity you know, it was um really uh, the lab that i worked in uh, was very collaborative and so it was two of my lab members who were working on this project 
and I was just interested in it. And so I helped them uh, check their math, run their models, edit their paper. I was not a co-author, but I was just kind of like learning from them. I was like apprenticed to them voluntarily. And, right. um, you know, in general, that's something that, that um, it's quite difficult to find. It's not something that's just always an option. But when uh, you're looking for a place to study, when somebody's looking for a place to study, I would always encourage them to look at the other grad students in the lab. That um, I think that uh, definitely my idea of how grad school was going to go, and I think a lot of people's idea is that you're going to be apprenticed to this, you know, amazing, brilliant person, which you are, um, but that you'll have a lot of face time with them, and you will not. Um, so, um, if you, if you pick instead the grad students that you think you're going to work with, um, that, that can often lead to, um, I think a lot of success because those are the people that you're really going to spend the most time with. Um, so school, and I picked, uh, happened to pick Brown University over, um, some other places because I, I thought that my colleagues, um, would be, uh, people I could learn a lot from and that I would enjoy working with. And when I went to uh, Todai, the University of Tokyo, I also felt like that was a lab where I could work with the other people there very well and they could teach me a lot. And um, yeah, and so that's how it went. And um, kind of uh, this, the, the thing you were saying before about like uh, the mathematics being hard or easy, it's, um, uh, I, you know, I didn't win a gold medal at the Mathematics <laughs> Olympiad. I'm not pretending um, that I'm, I'm a great uh, theorist. Um, but uh, if you, in that first problem that I had, and, and often in the problems that I'm looking at now, you don't have to demonstrate mathematical novelty. And if you can take yourself away from that super high and, and brutal bar, really, um, of, of innovation and novelty, and you can just think, ooh, this is a great tool and I have a problem this tool is going to solve, then it can, it can feel like a lot more fun. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I guess I guess your background in mathematics was the thing that resonated with you the most. Like you were most excited about a problem from a mathematics perspective, versus me yeah. when I when I when I have to design the codes in a distributed sense. That's what really excites me. That hey, now I have a deep learning model. How can I make it much more efficient versus parameter uh, uh, like making parameter efficient? So I guess it's the background that resonated with you the most. Mm -hmm. But uh, talking about extra projects, can you can you uh, speak to more about what kind of effort that you did apart from your coursework or whatever was expected out of you uh, as a graduate student that really made you interested in machine learning because I assume you are a person you are a much more it, it, it seems you are much more of a self-started person so was there something that you did uh, that not a lot of people would do so as a advice to people who might be interested into getting started and taking the extra mile yeah so that um, that is a, a good question because a lot of people feel like, you know, I have so much enthusiasm and how do I apply it? And something that's just very difficult about graduate <laughs> school, about machining, about research period is having to um, be your own supervisor and, and having to direct yourself. And, and because you have like so little, honestly, so little feedback, right? You're working on things, but, can you regularly pat yourself on the back and say, good job, you made your progress. Um, that, um, that I think that, I think that that's very hard and that's probably the most challenging thing about getting a PhD. Um, and, uh, so as far as like projects that I worked on that I, uh, and everyone will tell you this, that 
um, I tried very hard to pick projects that were publishable and that was not always successful. Um, <laughs> that was, but it turns out that's fine. Um, that, um, um, uh, that I, um, I picked a lot of projects that even if they didn't turn into conference or journal publications ended up being workshop publications. Um, workshops, of course, have a, a different standard for, for entry. Um, they're usually you know, interest-based. Um, they don't have the same review standards. Um, <laughs> but they're very valuable in getting feedback on your work, in feeling like you made progress, um, in, in making connections, uh, in having, in, you know, in a different world and having a reason to travel. <laughs> um, so I, during my master's degree, um, I did this, you know, several times in, in electrical engineering. And then during my PhD, I did this a lot where I would, um, I would think of, I would read an enormous amount of the literature. I would find some project that resonated me with me the way that you were talking before about different parts of our backgrounds resonating with us. It doesn't matter exactly what the topic is, but something that resonates with you and possibly something that piques the interest of your advisor because they're paying you. And, <laughs> um, and, and then just thinking up a workshop paper level thing. Don't think that it has to be published. Like don't, don't think of the huge mountain that you might have to, you know, sort uh, surmount in order to um, get something uh, in a conference or in a journal, just just workshop, identify. And I often did this where I would go through the workshops at NeurIPS, at CVPR, um, at CHI, uh, and think, is this a workshop where I like the other people who are publishing there? Um, I like the papers that are published, you know, in, in the last year's workshop. And I would think what could be something I could write that would end up in this workshop and then work on like a workshop paper that's a couple of pages long. And that got me a lot of my conference publications. Um, the, the downside to doing workshop papers is that sometimes you lose momentum after you've done a workshop paper and you don't actually finish it. And bring, so so self-discipline, um, enthusiasm, those things are always uh, difficult. But um, as far as an intermediate thing, uh, I guess my, my big thing that was useful for me was trying to figure out what is a way for me to get feedback? Like what's my own loss function? What's my own reward function? How do I feel like I've made some progress and, and how do I feel like that pretty frequently and that working on workshop papers um, was something that I thought was really good. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty valuable advice. I mean, I can relate, I can borrow some of the advice right now because I guess I'm, I'm in that very uh, initial state. So yeah, definitely that's a, that's a valuable piece. Um, and uh Talking more about like your research work, so basically it calls for PhD itself. So, what were the factors that you considered? Because uh, you you had a much more, uh, I would say, real based knowledge of machine learning. You you worked on real data sets, so it it could have been a very nice opportunity for you to go into the industry and say. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have this uh, XYZ amount of experience and I'm ready to work in the industry. Why did you consider, what were the factors that you considered for doing a PhD at that time? Um, so the, I didn't entirely choose it for myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> I finished my master's degree uh, in the middle of a recession um, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I, um, uh, after my master's degree, which I did in a different country, which I would totally recommend to everyone. It's super fun. And um, <laughs> the downside to doing um, a, a graduate degree that isn't in the place where you think that you're going to make your life is that it's a little bit harder to job hunt. The, the graduate programs really lead you directly into you know, your next, the next step of your career. 
And so you'll probably be living someplace near wherever it is that you got your uh, graduate degree. And um, uh, I decided after living in Japan for two years that I had an amazing time. It was such a fabulous part of my life, but that it was quite far away from my friends and my family. And I didn't think that I wanted to make a 20 year career in Japan. And um, so when I came back, it was uh, difficult. Uh, job hunting was, was difficult. And uh, anyway, there weren't a lot of jobs. So that's why I went to grad school. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm really glad I did. Um, I, I think that it, it turned out to, um, after another, you know, six years of graduate school, by the time I got to my postdoc, I felt like that was a good decision. That was the right decision. <laughs> so. But, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll like to probe you more on that uh, last note is, um, can you talk to more about your PhD experience? Like what, mm-hmm. I guess uh, you, you you mentioned it pretty honestly that uh, PS, doing a PhD wasn't your first plan, but it, it somehow was a part of your um the circumstances you were in, uh, I would rather say. So going into the PhD experience, and if you were to see in retrospect, what are the things that, apart from research, I mean, you have a stellar profile in research, so I won't be talking more than, um, about your research as of now, but uh, uh, talking about the non-technical traits, like was was there something you can reflect back on through your PhD that you learned or you grew, grew into uh, that you might have you, you might have something to speak to? Yeah, and um, I think that uh, things like time management, self-motivation, um, uh, being able to make connections with people that you work with remotely, um, the, all of those things are, are were really important to me. Um, but I can't give you like really good advice about how I did it. It's it's something that you know in your own life, and also it's different for different disciplines. So it depends on what area of the world, what area of science you're in, um, exactly what skills are going to be the most important. The uh, You asked for non-technical skills. And I think that the important thing that happened to me actually was that I needed many more technical skills than I thought I did. Um, that um, a lot of programming, honestly, like basic software engineering um, is really, really useful and important for prototyping things for producing things, regardless of your scientific discipline, that so much of any kind of science is massive uh, data processing, Um, uh, doing some interaction with other humans, so creating uh, some kind of UI, uh, some kind of application, Um, and that all of those things come down to software engineering. And the better a software engineer you are, the faster that you can prototype things. And um, I... I was reading a book by this science fiction author, uh, Ursula Le Guin, who I really liked and I liked since I was a kid. Um, And uh, it was like a kind of autobiography memoir. And she was saying that it's important to, um, to understand how to write sentences that sound good, that like those basic, uh, uh, very low level things about writing are really important to being able to write a really long novel Um, that that kind of craft of understanding how to put together a sentence enables the bigger art of narrative storytelling. And I think that that's also true of science today, that the craft of software engineering and software development enables great scientific discovery. And so um, the the thing that made my startup possible, um, the thing that that made it possible for me to build the systems in my PhD that later led to me getting a postdoc, that all of those things came down to um, 
uh, software engineering. And I didn't become a software engineer on purpose either. Um, I, that was not the career that I wanted. When, that definitely wasn't the career that I wanted when I started grad school. I thought of myself as, as a scientist and, you know, uh, learning fundamental truths and, and exploring mathematics. <laughs> And um, I failed my qualification exams my first year as a PhD student in computer science. Um, I failed them really badly. And, um, <laughs> and so I had to take um, uh, remedial. I, well, it was remedial for me. I had to take um, undergraduate. Uh, I had to take the like accelerated track of undergraduate software engineering at Brown. And it was really difficult. And um, then I had to take another uh, very intensive uh, software engineering exam. Um, when I was at Brown, the exam was a four-day uh, programming exam um, where you had to do something like build Twitter or build uh, Google Maps, like make it happen, four days, go, and um, do do a version of it. And um, uh, and that was was really grueling, um, but it, it made me uh, enough of a better software engineer that it, it enabled the rest of my career. And and I like am not naturally a good software engineer. Um, that uh, very few things about software engineering make me really excited <laughs> or interested, but it makes everything possible. So yeah, so you were asking for, I think like a non-scientific thing that I would say is the most important thing is software engineering skills. So uh, uh, for myself, for my younger self, I would recommend building better software, reading about how to build better software, work on writing all of my software in a better way. Um, and pushing myself to really write better software is a way to um, elevate, you know, your later career and your your ambitions. Yeah, no, I I really like the, the one point you made really stick into me was uh, the learning the craft, and which is something I really appreciate because uh, I I have been reading a lot of blogs recently, and one of at least one of the blogs I'm I'm bad at recalling memories, but I don't know where I read this from, but I guess it was like uh, I, I was trying to learn like what essentially contributes to a good PhD because uh, eventually you will work on projects, you will have publications, but what calls for a good PhD versus a bad PhD. And one thing that I learned was research is all about creativity because you learn the implementations one way or the other, either you're in industry or in research, but it's all about how you apply it, how you apply it creatively. So uh, I guess the one thing that uh, really stick to me was the craft. So I'll definitely check out that book that you suggested. And yeah, uh, to look back, yeah, definitely uh, one thing that I think a takeaway from your answer would be implementation. That was something that you really become good at and you became so good at that you were you went ahead to be a uh, co-founder for a startup which i guess I'll, I'll be asking more on those things uh, later on but while we are on the same note is can you speak to more about any of the drawbacks that you feel phd had on you overall i mean i i know this might be a personal question so feel free to uh, choose what you answer or uh, not answer but do you think that phd had any drawbacks for you so it's it's been long enough now since I graduated. It's been four <laughs> years since I graduated that I think like the real pain of it is like in my memory. Um, but I know that when it happened, uh, it was quite difficult for me to uh, not pass my first qualification exam. That was hard. Um, like the uh, I don't know, it really bruised my ego and my image of myself. <laughs> um, and um, self direction is really hard. Um, that my advisor gave me great high-level direction and, and you know, introduced me to very interesting topic areas and, and um, helped me get internships um, that really built my career. But, but trying to decide 
um, what is a research schedule? Like coming up with my own thesis. And this was, um, so I, I also did faculty search before I decided to do a startup. And I think that this is what makes the difference between a good faculty candidate and a bad faculty candidate. And I was a very medium faculty candidate. So I would not pretend like I have a great answer to this. Um, but having a vision, like a schedule for what your, your, uh, your, I don't know, passion, that sounds too kind of a weak way of saying it, but um, what's, you're the captain of a ship and what direction is your ship going in? What, what is your research plan? What is your vision? What is the coherent narrative of the projects that you're working on? And how do they fit together? Um, that uh, it's extremely hard to do that. And I found it very difficult to do that as a PhD. Um, but uh, as far as like personal experiences in, in doing a PhD, um, it was not bad for me at all. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I had some ego bruising during the process, <laughs> but for me personally, it was, it was not bad at all. And I, um, I think the difference between a PhD and a industrial job, a difference that I have experienced from having one, from being a boss of some people now for a little while and, um, from, from, you know, advising undergraduates and, and, uh, 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 younger than me, graduate students, um, that I think your identity is really bound up in your PhD. And that's hard for me. That was hard that, that like who I am and, and how successful I am personally was so tied to my PhD. And that's not true necessarily when you have a job, your job can suck. And that doesn't mean that you are bad in any way. Um, but if you have a PhD and things are sucking as at your PhD and in your research, you feel really bad about it. Um, and, if I could do it again, that I would try, I would try to separate that more in my head mm. and really realize that those things are not related. Like you don't, you don't have to have a good PhD to be extremely successful. You don't have to have a good paper. Um, uh, one of the most famous um, computer vision researchers, Jitendra Malik, who's a, a computer vision um, professor at, at Berkeley and probably the most prolific creator of other professors uh, in computer vision or computer science, um, did not have a single publication when he got his job at Berkeley. He just oh. had a pretty interesting thesis and <laughs> the uh, other faculty liked him. This is also truth about all jobs that like, you just need a champion. You need some people who think that you're cool. And so I, I know that this sounds very bad, but that like so much of your PhD comes down to luck. Like, did you happen to, you know, run into the right collaborators. It is, I think that if you put together um, craft, being very good at programming, really like having some mathematical background that's stable, having a pretty good software engineering abilities and having some luck or having enough patience to wait for the luck to come to you, that that is a lot of it. And if things are going bad outside of those two things, it's probably fine. Don't feel bad about it at all. That's that. That would be my advice to myself. That like the great ideas and the the sparkly, like exciting moments and products that I made. Um, I didn't need to be. I didn't need to feel as bad about myself when these weren't happening. Like I, I could have. I could have relaxed a little bit and just waited for the good things to come. Yeah. Hmm. 
I, I didn't know the statistics about the Jitendra Malik uh, profile. Yeah. It's definitely uh, very encouraging. I mean, definitely I, I shouldn't be undermining him or his work back then, but definitely it feels encouraging. But uh, before I before I move on to the technical aspects of your uh, research, I just had one question is, uh, how did you go on deciding your PhD topic? How did you and when did you decide that this is something I want to stick to for at least next three or four years when I'll be building my expertise on and how did you how did you do that I did not do that um, <laughs> I don't think I don't think that my research plan ever extended more than a year in the future so uh, uh, earlier I was talking about how um, a thing that I did in order to get into a new research area or to expand my capabilities in some subfield or on some topic was that I would try to identify a workshop paper that I could write and then I would maybe be working on one workshop paper, two workshop papers, one and a half workshop paper at a time. And one of them would be better than the other one. And that one would go to a workshop. And then if it was a strong workshop experience, that would develop into a conference publication. And um, if that was very good, it would develop into a journal publication after two years. But that's uh, like already beyond the point. You already knew it was successful. And so it's easy to go, well, it's a lot of work, but it's it's not uh, psychologically stressful um, to do the later journal publication. Um, but uh the, I definitely thought about it more in that like six month to one year increment. And I know that that is less possible in other sciences that because of the time it takes to do experiments, um, the horizon, the time horizon is longer, but at least in computer science, that six month um, cycle of inspiration, I think is, is useful and it's useful to move forward. Um, that can also feel a little punishing for publication uh, schedules. It can feel like a lot of pressure to have to publish something every six months. Um, uh, but if you publish, you know, a workshop paper and a conference paper every year, you will graduate in four years and be fantastically uh, successful. If you do a workshop paper one year and a conference paper the next year, you will be pretty successful. That is what I ended up doing about that schedule. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and, that's pretty and anyway, it kind of, it turned out like Legos. Like you were wondering how, how did I think of my whole career that, um, it, it ended up nicely building on itself, kind of like little Legos that snapped together that I had a workshop paper and then a conference paper. And then that inspired the next thing. And so looking back on it, it was easy to make a narrative, um, because, uh, they all grew out of each other. Hold on a sec. Let me, um, yeah. Is this okay? Background? I know it changes, changes the background. So it might make the YouTube video a little, um, unusual, <laughs> but, uh, to, like, can you talk to more briefly about your PhD work? Like, most of your uh, PhD thesis seems to be revolving around video scene understanding. That's what I that, that that's what according to my homework that I did felt like. But I guess it it could be more than that. So, can you briefly talk more about uh, what was what what were the research projects that you worked on, and what was its significance in terms of uh, the research community? Sure. So, um, uh. The big um, points of, of my PhD kind of separately were attributes for images. So besides, so of course, we're all familiar with object recognition, um, attribute understanding and recognition, like what are, um, what are ways that you could describe the contents of an image, uh, both in scenes, how can you describe a scene? How can you describe a person? Um, that was very interesting to me um, because I was interested in a kind of more, um, more human qualitative uh, interaction um, experience. And so the other uh, big part of my PhD was um, a human in the loop uh, computer vision. So how can you employ 
tens of thousands of people to create data sets for you? How can you interact with a user who might want to recognize something that's um, hard to define uh, specifically, like hard to define in words exactly, but easy to recognize in an image? How can you help them make classifiers? And um, so that uh, uh, kind of um, human in the loop uh, interactive computer vision pipeline um, something that I had success with in the uh, HCI community, uh, in the um, CrowdWork community. And then um, that also led me to collaborating with um, the creators of the uh, Common Objects in Context uh, dataset, which is a, a big um, benchmark for uh, image segmentation. Yeah. And so I worked with them um, on the challenge uh, for, for how, to, how to measure, you know, whether or not... Um, uh, classifiers do well on those um, tasks and how we understand uh, the performance of a segmentation model. As you get closer and closer to perfect, it gets like a little bit more and more complicated to evaluate whether or not your classifier is doing a good job. Um, so kind of overall, uh, my, um, my PhD and my interest during that time and continues to be how to, how to use machine learning. How can an individual person use machine learning to explore a large world of data? How can we take something that's like fundamentally not a human capability? How can we look at all of the pictures in the world? How can we see all of the pictures of all birds ever taken in North America in the last 40 years and be able to you know, find a bird that looks like the bird you're looking at or understand you know, what makes this kind of sparrow different than that kind of wren? Um, how can we um, do these things that are really uh, computer-like uh, and what's you know real difference between human and computers is um, uh, infinite memory, infinite memory and perfect recall. Humans don't have those things, um, but humans have zero shot learning abilities <laughs> and um, generalization abilities. So humans can do zero shot learning or, or, or low shot learning. You can tell a human find something that's got four legs and stripes, and they'll find you zebras. Um, and so, how can we take um, you know human uh, uh, inspired action? and human advantages um, and computer advantages, uh, infinite memory and perfect recall. And how can we put those two things together to help the human you know, achieve their goals faster? And, and that's what turned into um, my uh, interpretability work during my postdoc. Um, and also into my startup, which was about how to make it so that video editing is easier, which is also a thing where you want um, uh, a perfect recall um, over a lot of footage. And, and how can you, yeah, I'm, you obviously have a lot of experience editing video at this point. Um, so you know that it can be quite tricky and time consuming. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's, um, I suppose that was a long rambling thing. I went from uh, my inspiration was human interaction and human use of AI. And that inspired a couple of um, application things in slightly different directions. And that led pretty conveniently into my startup yeah no definitely i yeah uh, that's what i wanted to extend your your thought on that too i i, I learned that you also worked on interpreting deep the deep neural networks while your work as a postdoctoral fellow at uh, microsoft research mm -hmm. and i have briefly i mean yeah i can say briefly i have been into this uh, research field i haven't done any actual research but i have been reading a lot of uh, literature on interpretability and one thing that i realize is it's it's hardly subjective it's there is not amount of substantive research
research that is already out there that says you have to follow these ABC rules in order to make your deep networks uh, interpretable. So can you can you talk to more about? I I learned that you had a very nice uh, paper uh, or article I would say uh, deep miner that you worked on, and I assume this was during your work uh, at Microsoft Research. So can you talk uh, or and, and in general can you speak to more about interpretability and what has been your journey so far into it and how you see interpretability? Yeah, you know I think that it is a, a very important subfield because it's related to that, that other thing that inspired me during my PhD, which is how can humans use AI? And of course, like we live in a capitalist society. So how can we deliver to people who want to give you money something that you will pay money for? <laughs> and, and making AI usable is necessary to making it profitable or, or worth you know, spending uh, our time and our company's effort on developing. And so interpretability, I think, is still um, in an early enough time in the development of that subfield that, that exactly the problems that they're solving are slightly undefined. And the paper that I worked on, DeepMiner, uh, which I am working on a follow-up of right now, actually, um, hoping to, to have that um, come out uh, sometime this spring, was about um, how can we... Uh, look at mammograms. Um, so uh, a kind of medical image of um, uh, women's breasts to see if they have breast cancer. And how could we use deep learning, which of course can do a, a near expert level of uh, classification of the presence of cancerous cells in these mammograms. Um, how could we use them to uh, help doctors triage cases that require more attention or less attention? If, if you have a large medical system and having people actually manually review these, these scans, that's very expensive and time consuming. And while it's happening, someone's cancer could be getting worse. Um, so how can we use AI to do some, some assisting work? How can we help make the doctor's job easier? Because just saying that there's cancer also doesn't solve the problem. You would still need a doctor to evaluate this mammogram to understand how do you treat it? So how can we make AI more useful to the doctor? That was, that was really my inspiration. And um, uh, I think that interpretability work in general is a little bit different than a lot of other deep learning work because the objective is not, not easy to define. You don't want to say, hmm. oh, I need an AP score of 0.9 on this uh, you know, multi-class object segmentation thing. Like That's very easy to define. Do you line up the outline of the person's face with the actual outline of the person's face? I mean, it's debatable how easy that is. Um, there's some, <laughs> you know, mathematical problems there, but but that is, seems like a pretty well-defined thing. Did you explain your mammogram classification sufficiently so that a doctor can do their job better? That that is very poorly defined, and if you don't have a well-defined objective, it's very difficult to update any kind of model, much less a deep learning model, which is almost expressly <laughs> the whole reason they work is if you have very well-defined losses and objectives. Um, yeah. So I think that that, like making the objective more clearly defined is, is a problem in interpretability. And I think it's just the fundamental problem of interpretability. How do we change our loss functions? How do we change our definition of, of a goal um, for a neural network in order to, to accomplish new kinds of jobs? And um, that I think a lot of things that are coming out of that field are sort of um, best practices. 
like best practices for the world uh, for, for how to do it in, in um, you work for a hospital, somebody works for a, a, a military organization <laughs> or a law enforcement organization, someone works for a, um, a, a medical company that reviews, you know, a pathology tests, all of these different kinds of places um, that uh, what are best practices for them to use in their actual day-to-day work that I think that interpretability actually lines up a lot more with um, sociology research, research about governments and policy and how you should organize an institution um, right now than it does directly with uh, uh, more canonical machine learning work um, because those objectives are so hard to define. So like if I was starting my PhD over, that's, that's where I would really find a lot of interest. How can I set an interpretability objective that is really well-defined? What does it mean to be well-defined? Um, how do you evaluate um, the success of your model? Uh, against? I think that a lot of interpretability work doesn't have very good baselines. That, like, what is a baseline? What's the benchmark in interpretability? How do you define a benchmark? Um, if, if someone wanted to um, have a paper that was cited a lot, it would be, Developing a benchmark for interpretability. <laughs> what does that even mean? And that's yeah. yeah that, that's probably that's probably what I think is like a, a problem facing that field. Um, that that evaluation of utility is quite difficult. But uh, that just means that we should work on it. Not that um, you know, not yeah. that it should be ignored. <laughs> it's a, it's a real, very real, and very valuable problem. Yeah, definitely. Def- I I uh, it feels re- relieving because. Uh, that, that was something that I even found out, but I, I thought it was just me who is bad at doing literature review about these techniques. But it's it feels relieving that even people like you have found out the same things. But if I were to take a recap for interpretability, as we discussed, we, didn't, we don't have a very clear objective for any set of problems. We don't have a metric to evaluate. We don't have any benchmarks to compare. And versus we don't know how users would, uh, users would be interacting with the model or versus how the... Uh, the data subjects itself, they could be also interactive within the model. According to your experience, do you think that the research uh, in this particular domain is headed towards interpretability in deep learning uh, as that we are discussing right now is like achieving these things? Because frankly, I don't know, I I guess some of the organizations might be doing it, but the research is much more confidential to that. But at least the papers coming out don't try to be much more open. Like they are are much more focused on the problem that if let's say I'm working on Alzheimer's data set, I would make model uh, interpretable for Alzheimer's. But that doesn't mean it, it 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 would it won't mean that it would be interpretable on pneumonia data set versus let alone like any kind of other video data sets. So do you see or have you seen any kind of substantive re- re- research being done into this umbrella of interpretability? And if not, mm-hmm. what what do you sorry sorry for the long question, but like uh, what what according to you is limiting it? Is it just pure science that is limiting it, or is it something else? So um. I think that exactly what you said at the top, like what is a metric? What is a benchmark? What are we iterating towards? That um, our field, machine learning, is is really set up to improve in that, uh, that pattern. Um, how did deep learning become relevant in the world? It, it has been a, a field, a subfield of machine learning for decades and decades. When did it become um, really popular uh, as a research topic? in 
2012 when AlexNet uh, had such excellent performance on ImageNet. So really what happened was there was a benchmark with a very well-defined objective. Um, it happened to also be large enough that, that you could show off the, um, uh, the advantages of having a trainable model. Um, so that's, that's a secondary thing. Um, but uh, the year before um, AlexNet came out, Jan McCoon had a paper in CBPR um, for self-driving that was a segmentation of a cityscape using a deep learning method that was rejected um, because um, the reviewers did not believe that the results were real. And uh, uh, Jan McCoon wrote a Facebook post that said, CBPR is a horrible place. I will never publish there again. <laughs> Nobody knows what they're talking about. Um, so uh, I think like your, your questions about like, where is interpretability going? What does it even mean? It's very difficult to review papers about interpretability because the field that they're applied to are so disparate. So what do I know about particularly Alzheimer's research or any other particular thing? It's very difficult for me to review that. I've maybe done a little bit of medical work on the specific task of uh, uh, breast cancer, either pathology, you know, cell slides or mammograms. But I don't know anything else about medicine. So how am I possibly going to review some other uh, paper that's also on some specific subfield? Um, so it makes it very difficult for reviewing. Um, and it makes it difficult to say that you're building on someone else's research because, of course, we want domain uh, uh, applicable solutions. That really makes a difference in the real world. But it's difficult to build on someone else's uh, um, toolkit if it's so specific to just one problem. Um, and it, it isn't kind of designed with reusability in mind. So I do think that... Um, um, trying to understand what do we mean by interpretability. And it doesn't have to be a total solution, but uh, a version of the question of what does interpretability mean? Um, what are we trying to get with that? Having a metric that can quantitatively evaluate it. I think that that's very important. And one place I think that that's really happening is um, in uh, uh, natural language research trying to identify um, is an embedding space, you know, image captioning is an example, like is an, is an embedding space showing why a, a translation is happening? Is it explaining why it's answering a, a visual question in a particular way? Is it explaining how a caption happened? That um, those data sets seem very much like toy data sets, um, but uh, they, they have a quantifiable metric. Uh, so I think, um, yeah, and also that naturally, research that has to do with words is good for the topic of explaining because explaining involves words. Like there's some things that are just, you know, the, uh, the natural artifacts of the problem. Um, um, but, uh, but yeah, the broader point of like exactly where we're going with this, I think that that will, you know, emerge in the future years of, of how do we, how do we make a quantifiable uh, progress? interpretability and in some cases i worry that only large companies can do that um, because they have access to the most data um, and that that these problems end up having to have a lot of engineers working on them um, because they have to interact with a lot of different kind of data uh, which is difficult yeah. Um, but yeah i think i think like again starting out my phd if i could identify a data set, identify a metric, identify a benchmark, um, show that I did 
that I validated or invalidated my hypothesis on a benchmark and submit a paper like that, I think that that's a way to get cited a lot um, by a lot of people. Yeah, no, I guess uh, that I would I could take a shot at that because that's what I'm trying to do because I, I find myself much more uh, blindfolded on those things. But yeah, I guess, um, as you mentioned, um, <laughs> even I guess the second uh, inspiration for after Jitendra Malik would be like uh, Yan Likun for me, I guess if uh, his paper was something that got rejected, it's uh, it's something to look on to. And, you know, I wouldn't, um, I don't know that, this is something that Yannick would say that he came from, but um, <laughs> you taking something that I feel like I didn't do. There's a couple of examples um, in my own uh, PhD history that I felt like there was a problem that sort of bothered me. There was some, some evaluation of an objective or an organization of a deep network that like kind of bothered me that it was happening in a particular way, but I just let it bother me. And I kept plowing ahead on whatever uh, problem I was plowing ahead on. If it's bothering you, it's probably bothering a lot of people. So if you work on it, it's going to be appreciated by a lot of people too. If it's something, and and not, um, you know, a lot of people would give the advice of like not focusing too much on trying to compare to recent literature. Um, I review a lot of papers. I review probably, you know, somewhere between six and 10 papers for every top tier um, machine learning and computer vision conference because there are a lot of papers submitted and they need a lot of reviewers. Yeah. So I do a lot of reviewing. And, and I would say that um, I am very frequently really drawn to papers who say, I'm not going to try to compare to absolutely every paper in the literature. I am just going to say, this is a problem that I see and I'm going to take a first principles approach to it. I'm going to say, what would I do logically? I'm just going to step through it like logically like you would in a high school math class. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other and they just keep doing that. And by the end of the paper, they have observed something interesting. And I find those papers, uh, I am very likely to accept those papers. Yeah, yeah definitely. It, it cites back to the thing that we discussed previously, but was like creativity. It's all about creativity. We don't have to be purely technical always. It's like how to see uh, in a different sense how we can be much more crafty about uh, developing solutions rather than being technical. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think that really, you know, having, having like some fundamental skills, like, like you have, you know, totally within any grad school, any grad student in computer sciences wheelhouse, they have like some fundamental mathematical skills, some fundamental programming skills. And if they say, I'm just going to use these tools to, uh, yeah, explore a problem on my own, and I'm not going to look too much at how other people are doing it, that I think I have in my own life been quite surprised at the quality of output when I tried not exactly to look at what other people were doing and I just trusted myself to make it to the end of the exercise. Hmm. Yeah, that's a valuable advice at least. I'll, I'll take that for sure. <laughs> but I, it'll, to... it'll be worth a workshop paper for sure and it might be worth a conference paper. So. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah, definitely. Uh, I guess I, I won't be overestimating myself for sure, but I'll I'll try to do that. But uh, trying to segue a bit out of interpretability because um, uh, one of the few one of the few things about your profile that I really liked was you you plunged yourself into the startup space, which was you co-founded a startup called Trash, right? I guess, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but you did that after your postdoctoral position at Microsoft Research. And you went on to uh, 
developing this idea into a product which was later acquired by a company uh, VSCO which you are working at right now so can you talk uh, I guess uh, I can find out few articles which say what the uh, uh, tool is about and what VSCO does a lot, lot of people do uh, already know what VSCO is about but I want to learn more about the time phase when you came up with the idea and how you went on to at least thinking about that hey this is one I this is what I want to uh, nurture this idea into a product and maybe like even if it wasn't uh, acquired by VSCO that would be a standalone company itself right now so what was that time phase like how did you go how did you go on to having the idea to at least thinking that I want to be much more uh, professional about it and I want to build a product that I can uh, make it profitable out of it so there is this um the guy who works at Square, I guess he works now, and he's um, his Twitter handle is Patio11, mm-hmm. and I can't remember what his actual name is. But anyway, um, he's like pretty successful entrepreneur. He's very well respected software developer, and um, he's always saying that there are so many companies making like. $10 million a year, $100 million a year, and you never hear about them. And they're never like massively celebrated except, you know, by themselves and they throw themselves parties and stuff. But but they're not like, they don't, they don't get this um, uh, 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 media attention or, or research attention or even like Twitter level of attention. People are just kind of out there doing their jobs. And uh, the thing is that they're very successful. There's like so many ways to success and stability and, and usefulness and connection with customers and connection with people there's a lot of ways and we don't have to say like either an elon musk or i'm nothing like <laughs> there's there's so many other ways to to be successful so yeah 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 i guess uh, i guess it, it relates to the thing that uh, when we say i i am I'm, I'm an overnight success but it took me almost 30 years to be an overnight success <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's somewhere mm-hmm. along those lines so yeah, yeah i guess i guess okay. you were referring to um Patrick McKenzie, uh, he works yeah. for Stripe, yeah. And Stripe, yeah. yeah, sorry, I confused uh, Stripe and Square, they're very different. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, and I um, I started following him for advice about um, how to organize my startup uh, when I started Trash, that he had like some, you know, how to do staffing, how to organize your engineering team, and um, yeah, and it just it made me think like, wow, there's so many, there's so many people who are good at this. There are so many ways to be good at this. And I thought that I was like totally crazy for doing a startup. I was like a little bit crazy. Um, but uh, I, I definitely thought that I was like doing a kind of um, ridiculous, hopeful mission in making a startup. And, and it's just, it's possible. It's just a totally possible and normal thing for you to do. And people should try it if they feel like it. Yeah. Right. So I think that I, um first wanted to start a startup um when I was a master's student right right when I started my master's degree so I've been thinking about uh how to build a business what is a good idea for building a business um I was probably thinking about that for 10 years before I did it um and I was uh always on the lookout for a good idea um I I interned um at a computer vision startup called Clarify which is is a um, run by uh, a really brilliant uh, uh, computer vision researcher um, called Matt Zeller and uh, has a you know, very interesting business plan. Um, but I, for myself, was always looking at, at, at 
computer vision ideas, opportunities in the market, and trying to say, is that the business that I want to build? And, and I mentioned Clarify because they run um, a computer vision API, a recognition API. And I think that that is a, a totally monetizable uh, thing to come out of computer vision. But I didn't particularly want to build a SaaS business. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the business artifacts of that seemed quite difficult to me, like competing with some other large companies, Google, et cetera, who could also provide computer vision APIs, Amazon, Microsoft, um, that that was like very intimidating to me. And um, when I was a, a master's student and I was thinking what kind of, um, at that time I was thinking like electrical engineering uh, sort of um, uh, startups, um, that they were hardware startups that would have be very capital intensive and it would take a long time to turn a profit. Um, so uh, I suppose what I'm trying to get to is that it wasn't that I suddenly had an idea and I was like, oh, this is going to be monetizable. I'm going to turn this into a business. <laughs> it was more like I was thinking, I want to have a business. Is this a good business? Is this a good business? Is this a good business for about 10 years? And um, I was introduced to my business partner, Hannah Donovan, um, by a mutual friend of ours that, that worked at Microsoft Research. And Hannah said, people are making a lot of video online. TikTok is a big thing. Musically, before it was a big thing. Um, and uh, video is very difficult to work with. And it's additionally very difficult to work with on your phone. Um, so tell me some computer vision magic that you can do to help me, you know, uh, essentially auto-populate um, a rough draft of a video composition. And I thought, oh, that is something that is quite easy for me to do. I can prototype it for you very quickly. And um, I think that the the part that mostly made up my um, my app, the Trash app, which did exactly what I said, you select some videos, you select 10 videos from your camera roll, it picks out moments that it thinks are particularly attractive and interesting, it sets them to a beat of music, it cuts in your voice when it's appropriate, and it created for you this um uh, this rough draft of a video that you could then go in and edit, uh, you know, exactly to, to your personal taste, um, that I thought, oh, I could do that very quickly. And the biggest parts of it, I probably wrote in a couple of months. Um, oh. the, the machine learning parts, uh, a collection of data, training of our own models, prototyping, uh, probably all together. It took a couple of months and then it took a few more months to make the iOS up. And, um, uh, so that seeing that line up, took 10 years of thinking what are elements of computer vision that, that are mature, that could make it into a product, um, trying to do uh, other computer vision startups, um, making my own web app, different web apps, <laughs> um, uh, different um, you know large distributed uh, uh, computer vision training systems um, during my PhD that I ran into things that I'm like, this is too difficult to commercialize. This is going to be too difficult to commercialize. This is going to be too competitive. Um, this is going to be too capital intensive. This is going to require too large a staff. And then finally, I ran into a thing where I was like, oh, I can definitely do that on my own. And it's only going to take me a couple of months and we can have a product out the door. And that's why I did it. That is one of the reasons why I did what I did. I also thought it was a fun idea. So it sparked my joy and I thought it would be not too hard. And it was pretty hard, <laughs> but it was the easiest of all the things I could have done. So, yeah. Wow. So I guess, um, yeah, the key takeaway would be like you were intrinsically motivated by the application of what uh, the trash app does and and hence everything. Like it's like, uh, I, again, I don't know why I'm bad today of uh, recalling my memory, but uh, 
I read this somewhere in the book I guess it's an autobiography or I don't know if it's a self help book where it says like oh, figure out the why and you will figure out the hows so uh, it's like if you if you if you are really motivated why you want to do it the rest of the things are just a matter of time depending on the thing that you are doing so yeah that that's really interesting but I guess my next question to that as a follow up was like <laughs> uh like at least for me right now even if i'm just developing deep learning models it it's a it's a huge task to at least implement those scripts that i write and deep learning models that i build and getting on task like after that it's done it's just a matter of uh, tweaking those things but it's it's a tough task but i guess you mentioned you you set up the whole uh, pipeline for this particular trash app in just 2 months but my question was like how uh, how did you go on to build an application because mo- not a lot of people understand that doing research is like just one standalone code it, it works on one data set but compared to that making an application that users might be interacting with it where the reliability and robustness and real timeness comes into the play it's a whole different domain whole different expertise but can you talk to more like how did you build that expertise because i assume by the end of when your when the trash was acquired by vsco it was a standalone app and i i saw it was available on all the app stores so how did you was that something that you grew into again uh, because i i i can t- i can take a pattern yeah. out out of your life as like you grew into a lot of things that were not in your first priority so how did you do it and uh, what is something that people that that you learned that people might not learn if they are not into that particular business so um uh my app when i first released it was super buggy and crashed a lot. It was a little bit difficult to use. <laughs> it was not just a little, it was kind of difficult to use. Um, so uh, I, but, but at that time, I felt like release it because I had a certain number of investors and they were expecting us to try to release it and, and see if people liked it. And I think that, I think that I even waited a little bit too long um, to release it. Um, that I, um, the stability of my app after it had been released for about a year and a half was possible because we had two very excellent iOS developers that um, we had hired. Um, and so really like high quality um, comes from having a team and having, you know, this goes back to my idea of if you want to be successful in a graduate lab, look at the other graduate students that you're going to work with and think who would be good coworkers. That, that a high quality product will be made by a team that works well together but that doesn't happen on day one and it doesn't that's not a thing that you're like oh you know what all i need to do is find the perfect coworkers and then the perfect product will fall out of it it's more about um doing things really badly for a while um that um uh, how why was i able to to make uh the deep learning models that ran on device very quickly because i had been building um you know when I joined uh, grad school, I built thousands and thousands of SVMs. And then <laughs> I had a lot of, you know, neural network models. I had gone through many, many neural network training pipelines. I had built other web apps. I had like been building kind of bad things for eight years before I started um, my uh, startup. So so this goes huh. back to like being a good software engineer that, that when you can really write something very excellent, It, it exactly addresses your problem it's simple it's elegant it is because you have already written something many many times that sucked and 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 you don't see any problem as a new problem all problems are a version of other problems that you've solved the the company that i started it wasn't that i thought 
video editing by itself is necessarily my passion. I do think that creativity and, and creative work product and art is, is something that I really like to, to do and make part of my work. But that wasn't like the thing, the problem that I felt like I had to solve. It was more like I had tried many, many, many problems for a very long time. And then I found a simple problem. It was a version of earlier problems that I had solved and I was able to, to so your question about like, how did I get, uh, make an app when app development is clearly a different sort of software uh, engineering um, that I, uh, I had several times in my career had to change what kind of language I was programming in. I had to learn a new language. I had to learn a new paradigm. I was from graduate school, pretty familiar with having to pick up a new skill quickly. And I think that that was actually very similar to my PhD learning how to be a full stack engineer, learning how to be an iOS developer. That was very much like, oh, you have to take optimization and write a workshop paper on an optimization topic this semester, go for it. Like it's pretty similar. And um, uh, with the differences that you have like a bunch of investors that are like, we want our money back if you don't do it. And, <laughs> and nobody ever said it quite like that, but they put a lot of pressure on you. Um, so so the, the upscaling was a lot like um, learning new skills in a PhD and having to learn it by myself. Um, but as far as uh, trying to figure out like how to address um, a problem or, or figuring out what was the right problem to solve, it was that I had for eight years or longer been not doing it very well. And um, yeah, and that, that's really, you know, if I had to like recommend uh, a PhD, like what's the big, what is a big reason to do a PhD? And it's that you get a lot of experience trying things out because you want to try them out but if you work for a company it's directed by someone else so like the breadth of things that you can try out the different kinds of systems that you can try to build is quite limited and it's very mm -hmm. open as a phd student and so when you finally get to the end of the road you will know how to do everything better than everyone else like getting a phd is good because you really will be much more capable and and able to up level or, or gain new skills in a way that someone who has worked for a company for a long time might not be able to do, or might not be, might be less familiar doing. Um, so becoming a, a self-driven thought leader, I think is like a big takeaway from your PhD that, that you can really do things on your own. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess um, the last note really sticks to me again is uh, exploring the breadth. I mean, I, I won't even claim that I have done that. What, but the sort of work that you you try to explore, at least you had the aim to explore. Because one thing that I'm always kind of like uh, at the risk of saying that I'm afraid, I would say I don't like because when people ask me that uh, why don't uh, why don't why didn't you take a SD job is something that I'm I'm just not interested but I know deep down the line that at least I should have the skills I mean definitely it's not something that is required but it is a part of your daily routine like I'm, I'm, I'm sure even right now at your job place it's not something that you can go around and your work your, you can work your way around it so it's like full stack skills are definitely something that's required one day or the other so yeah, definitely. I'll I'll try to take this as a note to myself that at least I have five years ahead of my PhD. I should be at least capable enough to do that, if not, uh, at least learn those skills. So, but and you know, I think that it's like super valuable after you graduate. Like, if if you are not interested in being faculty, even if you are, like, this might also help in picking students if you become faculty, um, <laughs> picking students that will be able to generate a lot of research. But um, having a deep understanding of the software development workflow, how do you put things together? 
had a different or how do you learn about a, a new full stack component and, and what requirements there are. That's really important at being an executive in a company mm-hmm. um, that uh, I know that that uh, my startup was acquired um, both for the technology that we developed, um, uh, the, the app that, that I work for. Um, Visco is a very popular photo editing app, photo editing community, and they have some video editing, but they really want to move into the video editing space, which is why they acquired us. Um, but they also wanted me to be a technical leader at the company and mm. having having a real understanding of what software development and engineering requires, um, that, that that's important to leading a team. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And if if I were to extend that particular advice of yours, because I, I guess right now I, I had this question planned out for you, but I guess this question actually makes sense more now since I've learned a lot more about you is, can you like most of the people that even when they reach out to me and even though I'm, I'm definitely I'm not an expert but over my years of my journey into machine learning I feel I still fail to answer and give the best answer and feel free to take a shot at uh, you can take a shot at this is most of the people are interested in machine learning because of the coolness it brings and which is nothing wrong in itself I mean a lot of people get into machine learning uh, just because how cool it is but they find it overwhelming i mean where to get where to get started even if that person is highly uh, capable and skilled and talented they find it much more overwhelmed by the kind of coursework or the resources because definitely coursework is not something not always designed to give you the best interest unless you are in into one of those very nice schools. So what has over the time been a nice kind of a pipeline for you to learn these things? Let's say if if you if if I want to say to you that hey let's let's sit together and learn the state of art of NLP. What would be your pipeline looking like and what did worked out the best for you and how did you how did you go on to learning things that would be and I know this answer wouldn't be specific to you because not every solution works for everyone so can you can you shed some advice for young researchers yeah well I um I think now more than ever there is a crazy amount of possible information available online there's just a flood there's so much and (laughs) and that can be so intimidating because there is so much um but uh even 10 years ago when I was starting uh, my, my grad program, um, I was thinking some teachers are better than others. Some courses are better than others. Some things are more understandable. And uh, so I really love the Justin Johnson, Andre Carpathy uh, deep learning course at uh, Stanford, the CS. 132 or 123 or something. Anyway, um, I taught a version of that class at Tufts. <laughs> I bootstrapped oh. from their curriculum. I really love their curriculum. Um, and um, I really love my advisor, James Hayes, taught a computational photography class at Brown, which is also available online uh, with all the homeworks and stuff. It's in MATLAB, I think, but um, James Tompkins. Uh, current um, uh, uh, computational photography professor at Brown, um, I think has a version with Python uh, skeleton code. And um, uh, I I think doing any coursework is great. Doing a course that you enjoy more is important to finishing that course. So picking the one that like you will actually finish. And, and I took a couple of courses in optimization, 
um, in bases, in software development, uh, which don't happen to be publicly available, um, but were are quite challenging and I enjoyed them. And so the, um, even though I'm not an optimizations researcher, like the topics from that course, I can understand much better theoretical machine learning papers that use optimization techniques because I once took a course on that that I was interested in. So early in your graduate career, it's very difficult to balance. Do you take more courses or do you do more research? And I don't have any advice on exactly how to divide your time, except that the time that I spent on courses was very useful. The time that I spent on publishing research was also very useful. Um, so I don't know, get more time somehow in your life. Um, but uh, picking picking a couple of courses that you think are like really good, that you really enjoy. Don't, don't worry that there's other courses out there that are better or there's more information that you know. You don't have to know everything. Um, knowing something really well, knowing some set of things really well is so valuable. Actually, this is going to sound a little trivial. I have an aunt who once told me, that the way to become a great cook, she's like very good home cook. And she said, just memorize five recipes, five recipes. <laughs> and if you can do five recipes, then no one who comes to visit you will probably have the same thing twice. Or if they do, maybe you'll like do a little variety on it. And they'll think that you're so amazing and you'll really only know how to make five things, but it'll seem like you're really great. <laughs> and the thing is, is that once you you learn. And in this last year, I have been getting into baking. So I am learning this a little bit myself. <laughs> if you really know how to do like five different kinds of, you know, recipes or, or pastries, you learn so many fundamental techniques that you really do know a lot about a lot of other things. And so mm -hmm. you really quickly become an expert. So my, the thing that worked best for me was taking uh, like a curated set, a few courses, that were very deep and probably quite difficult, um, but I really enjoyed them and focusing on those. And then another thing on the side is reading a ton of papers, but don't try to read them too strongly. Like read a hundred papers, but read them very quickly. Hmm. <laughs> don't yeah. worry about absolutely understanding everything. And that'll give you like a very high level knowledge of where information is. And then that brings you back to writing a workshop paper, which is you have you have some uh, uh, very high level skills that you got in a course that you practiced in a course. You have some breadth of information because you've read about a hundred papers, just do a hundred, like make it an exercise. That's that, that is what I did my first year of my PhD. I tried to read a hundred papers by reading two papers a day. And um, uh, yeah. And by the end of it, I really felt like I knew uh, the um, uh, object recognition and scene recognition research my first year. And um, then I was able to think of a workshop paper that I was like, this is my, this is the new thing that I'm going to do. And I tried to go about it from a first principle sort of way. And I wasn't always successful in all my papers having this like very clear line, but the very first paper I wrote in my PhD, that's how I did it. And I thought it was pretty successful. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is a valuable piece of advice. And um, uh, the uh, your aunt's advice is definitely great. I mean, I never looked at that that way, but I guess that's what most of the people do. I mean, when they claim to be experts, I guess, I mean, not to undermine that they are experts in that field, but it's it's much more narrowing down your research and just being an expert into that because it's practically impossible for one person to be a, a, a uh, an expert in at least 10 topics let's say it's just going to be one or two so yeah narrowing down your yeah. focus is something and it really turns out that if you have if you're an expert in any topic in computer science it will be applicable to another area of computer science so if you're yeah. an expert 
screwed in even like one very narrow thing, whatever techniques you use are almost certainly going to be useful in another area. And um, yeah, the, the read a hundred papers thing was recommended to me um, by Spike Hughes, who uh, wrote uh, the famous graphics textbook, uh, computer graphics textbook that is taught uh, most um, undergraduate uh, computer science curriculum, um, John Hughes. Um, and he said, that's, that's just how you get on top of something, especially the first time that you're trying to get into a new topic. So early graduate students, it's like, read, read a ton. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, uh, I, I don't want to extend that answer more, more, but I guess that's what one thing that resonated with me, because if you remember, I told like, I want to get away of software development, and hence I got into research. But when I was talking before I enrolled myself into a PhD program, just so I know what I'm getting myself into, I talked to a few of the computer science PhD students who are about to graduate, and they said, you can't get around software development, you will have to learn the one way or the other. I mean, it's part of your it's it's kind of a hurdle, you are seeing that there are two branches, it's not just that and I realized that in just maybe my first six months when I was trying to set up my uh, when I was trying to set up my deep learning model to work on my school's server and I was just trying to do all those things I was trying to learn how to uh, set up my server into a distributed GPU server how I can use uh, TensorFlow I mean TensorFlow is much more mm-hmm. UI oriented so it's it's not much task oriented but yeah I I definitely second to that particular thought and, yeah, uh, and and having the ability, or even even if it's not something that you're terribly, it's weird because I say like it's not something that terribly interested me. But my husband is a distributed systems professor, and so I get like the perspective from him of like why it's interesting certain network configurations or exploring how to set things up in a distributed way. And and when I hear about it from somebody who is very interested in it, and so maybe this is another recommendation: make friends in other areas of computer science. Because they will tell you like what is the interesting perspective on that work, and that will help you get into it. And then, definitely with software development, and also I think with some systems knowledge, you can just make so many more machine learning experiments. You can just set up a lot of experiments, and the more experiments you do, the more research and the more answers you have. Yeah. So. No, no, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, th- that was actually the thing. Like, I mean, just to get you more curious about this, but what what got me interested in distributed uh, computing was uh, I was running this. Uh, like, there were a few PhD students whose model that I was using who graduated a few years back in my lab, and I was using their models. And it was it was built for just one GPU. So what happened was like I had a forty epoch system, and that forty epochs would take around, uh, I would say. 14 to 16 hours for total completion and this was neuroimaging data so it's like a very like i guess 12 gb of data that was being crunched at a time mm-hmm. and uh he didn't do he didn't do an optimization for gpu because at that time gpus weren't available to our lab and uh when gpus were available to my lab and when i learned that hey at least i should take a shot at this and i had taken this uh d- um what was the course name? Uh, distributed Systems for Machine Learning. I had taken this course as a graduate student. And when I just did few basic code changes, and thanks to TensorFlow, I mean, it's super intuitive. And I was able to do those things in just at least less than half an hour. Like the whole thing from 16 hours to now is reduced to maybe half an hour or maybe slightly more than that. So that alone got me interested that, hey, I should be exploring more about this. I mean, at the end, I should be knowing how to optimize my things. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I think that that's super, super useful, like uh, debugging time, something just in general about software development, about machine learning development, about all these things. If you can shrink debugging time 
that's going to make an enormous impact on your research and on yeah. your quality of life. Um, but, uh, and I didn't make this work at, when I was a graduate student, but uh, um, Andre Karpathy, who, whose course I mentioned earlier, um, like one of his big recommendations for graduate students is to work on blogs and work on their Twitter and work on their podcasting. Um, <laughs> and so if you think of Excel, like some accelerations like that, definitely like tweeting about them, sharing them in some way that leads to jobs and speaking engagements and collaboration invitations. It can be really useful. So do it for yourself, do it for your friends. It will be really good. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And while we're on topic of exploring more than just machine learning in computer science and maybe trying to make a ride around the computer science umbrella, I have, I have invited at least just maybe a handful of people who I have the privilege of asking this question is, uh, you have, if, if I were to look back onto your profile, you started off as a person who was into electrical engineering and mathematics. Later on, you transitioned to slightly research or maybe applied research. Then you, then at least the situations made you take a PhD. Then you got into PR research then uh, you graduated with a stellar profile and you you uh, did your hands around in startup which is much more implementation level and now you are head of re head of research that is along the lines of product design and much more than just uh, implementations so you have you have your ride around computer science on at least most of the arenas that people might think of but most of the people that I see and students targeting is just a job at Google, job at uh, FANG companies. So what would be that one piece of advice that you would give for people in, in the direction of exploring more avenues in computer science? It's not just about getting a job that is uh, highly paid or highly cited, but like exploring. How, how would you give an yeah. advice on same note? So I would... Um... And I got this advice from another uh, famous graphics um, uh, professor at Brown, um, uh, Andy Van Dam, um, who uh, Andy, uh, uh, the cowboy in Toy Story, was named after because um, his students were <laughs> Pixar people. Um, so, so somebody who who you know really uh, influenced um, uh, research, and then also had lots of students who built you know fabulously successful companies. And um, I was asking him, how do I know if I want to go into business and, and do a startup and you know, push technology forward from an industrial perspective, or um, uh, uh, sorry, my brain turned off for one second. Um, how do I want to go um, in an industrial direction, or do I want to, you know, continue to work uh, in pure science? And he recommended doing an internship at a startup. And that is what I would really recommend to people who it's possible for. So something I think that I myself and my friends have, have been nervous about is how do you get a steady paycheck? Like as a graduate student, maybe like your pay isn't so great. And so you're a little bit closer to, to you know, that reality of making your rent. But uh, I think that I was pleasantly surprised in my own life that startups pay a lot better than I thought they did. Um, so finding a startup that, that has, you know, reasonable pay and then doing uh, an internship in a startup. If you're a graduate student, you have several years, so you can do a Microsoft startup, you can do a, a, a Google Microsoft internship or a Google internship. Um, but uh, you can also maybe take one summer to do a startup internship. And that, that gives you like a really good perspective on the type of work. And that whether or not you want like a certain kind of stable uh, uh, corporate experience with a lot of benefits, whether you want the excitement and the self-direction and really like the power to set your own life 
of doing a startup. Or similarly, if you want the power to see your own life, but you're not as interested in interacting with consumers um, to go into research, um, you really have the chance to do that in grad school. And so I would recommend trying to trying to try them all out and, and see which one just seems the most exciting to you personally. Yeah, no, that's that's a valuable thing. And that is one thing I I have that as a to-do for me. Like I, I want to work at a startup in the first few years after my PhD. I don't want to jump directly into a big company where I'll be working on a preset of uh, implemented pipelines. I want to learn how I can actually build those pipelines or at least see them building. So yeah, definitely, definitely. And yeah, we are oh, almost and towards... I'm so sorry. My, uh, my baby is waking up and he's crying in the background. So uh, I might have to... <laughs> go if you could give me a second i can um give him yeah, yeah. something go, go ahead go back. ahead yeah, yeah okay, go ahead i'll go be ahead. right back just one okay, okay sure sure I am back. We are almost towards the end of this uh, particular uh, podcast. And on a concluding note, I just have two questions. Is first being, uh, what is one technology or uh, idea that is being researched into the research community a lot that you are particularly trying out, or maybe you are just very optimistic about looking at those results? What is something that is you find that might be much more interesting to look at? Sure. So I think that. Um, uh... I think the transformer research uh, using uh, attention-based mechanisms for sequence modeling um, is exciting because it's such a, uh, it can end up being computationally a more lightweight way um, to, to run a model, which is exciting to me who runs models on phones all the time. Um, and uh, I think that it makes setting up uh, joint embedding spaces um, a little more convenient. So I think that like um, in, in a lot of media companies, um, really retrieval is an important thing. Uh, that's maybe a less robust area of research right now, um, but it's very applicable um, to uh, uh, consumer applications, um, being able to retrieve media or match things based on content, but not necessarily the same media type, you know, text, images, users, user histories, videos, et cetera. And, and so, uh, yeah, transformers, joint embedding spaces, those things um, I think are, are exciting for rapid implementation uh, yeah, in the consumer space. Right, right. And yeah, just one last question would be, I recently found out while I was doing a homework about you is like you are involved at least by some bits or like, I don't know what uh, what exactly I'll, fee I'll uh, give the stage for you to talk more about is you're involved with something that has to do with AI for climate change. You are in the con content committee. Can you talk to more about uh, how exactly you are a part of it and how exactly in general the space of using AI for climate change is being worked? I mean, not a lot of research is out there already where people say mm -hmm. uh, how exactly AI is being used it is being used for sure but can you speak uh, to that sure so uh, i'm a volunteer with um, uh, climate change ai ccai um, which is an organization that grew out of uh, the ai for climate change workshop at nips uh, another example of workshop being very useful <laughs> um, and um, the uh, founders of that uh, uh, nonprofit organization um, wrote a paper which hasn't been published in a journal, but uh, is being cited a lot, and and I hope having um, influence um, in policy spheres and in applications. And so, if you search for uh, climate change AI, um, you'll find this this paper, which is on archive, um, which has a list of climate change mitigations, like 
climate change is affecting the planet. This is a reality and we only have three options, mitigation of the effect, adaptation to the climate change happening or suffering. We can just deal with the bad thing that's going to happen. And uh, so on a lot of mitigation and adaptation um, topics, um, using using machine learning to, to, to recognize how to optimize our resources or how to adapt to, you know, changing world effects um, uh, is, is a place where it's possible um, machine learning could be useful. And their paper has a lot of specific recommendations. Um, what I'm doing is uh, designing a course um, in the example of those courses that I said earlier that I really like, um, uh, making some um, interactive uh, uh, Python-based um, course materials where people who work at companies that might have um, you know, an effect on climate change um, uh, can learn how to use some of these techniques so that they can introduce them directly into their products. Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll, I'll be the first person who would uh, like to enroll myself in that course for sure. So yeah, well, I'll let you know when it comes out. You can, yeah. you can promote it for me. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But yeah, that's the end of this podcast. I didn't have any much more questions in general for planned for you. So I'll, I'd like to thank you. I know this has been a long podcast than the previous one. And I guess that's what like previous to what I committed for you is like maybe a one hour thing. So thanks for bearing with me and thanks for being patient about it. But this was uh this was one of the best podcasts that I had because one of the reasons like you are being super honest about and a lot of experiences that you shared was something uh, very detailed. So I really like that. And I hope anybody who is listening or watching this video uh, finds it useful. And I'll leave a couple of links to your social media profiles or anyways people can connect to you uh, for your linkedin and your twitter for sure so but thanks for being here and thanks for taking my out pleasure. such a long time and yeah, yeah my pleasure thanks for letting me go on and on um <laughs> yeah, I, hope, I hope it was helpful thanks for having me